Thanks, guys. Hey, you guys can have a seat. Thank you guys for, for being here today. Thank you, band, for leading us in worship and reminding us of that good news. It is done. It is finished. We're not people who, who come together when we come together for worship, when we come to church. We're not people who come together because we think we've got to do something, that we have to achieve something, that we have to accomplish something to get right with God. But we come together because it is done. It is finished. Jesus has done everything necessary to give us new life and to bring us to God. And so, so grateful that you guys are here today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, um, worshiping with us in person or online, thank you guys for being here. Uh, this is the time of our service. It's a nice day today. So it's a time of our service where kids can be dismissed if you guys want to. So ages three years old up through fifth grade can go out the back of the sanctuary. Um, they'll just kind of be hanging out outside during the sermon time. Um, we do ask parents that you would make sure that your kids are checked in at the back just for, for safety purposes to make sure that we, we can take care of everybody. So kids, you guys can do that right now. Uh, if, if that's what you guys are going to be doing today, have fun. Um, we are continuing our series today in the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms was really like the hymn book. It was the, the, the prayer book and the hymn book. All right, there we are. All right. What I love about the deepest song, the book of Psalms is that the Psalms never shy away from the ugliness of life. Like they're real life. They don't sugarcoat life. They don't pretend like everything is happy and bright and wonderful. The Psalms are utterly realistic about the way that we look at life, the way that they look at human beings, the way that they look at the reality of the world around us. Like you open up the book of Psalms and you read some of these Psalms and you're like, I can't believe you went there. I can't believe he said, he, like, he said that in church. Like he said these things that sometimes we're afraid to even say out loud. And the Psalm today is one of those Psalms. And this Psalm today, Psalm 73, which we're going to be looking at today, we hear the voice of envy, the voice of envy. Now it's one of those things often that we avoid. So what's envy? Envy at its bare minimum means wanting something that someone else has. But it's actually more than that. It's not just wanting something that someone else has. It's wanting something someone else has and thinking that you deserve it and thinking that God is unfair or life is unfair or the universe is unfair or whoever is unfair because that person has it and you don't. Now, what's interesting is that throughout the history of the church, envy was typically considered one of the seven deadly sins. And yet you don't hear much, if anything, about it in churches today. You'll go into a church, you'll hear about the dangers of lust, you'll hear about the dangers of greed, you'll hear about the dangers of wrath, but we hardly ever talk or think or read anything about the dangers of envy, because envy is one of those sins that we are most blind to. Sometimes we don't even see it in ourselves, and that's what makes it so dangerous. It's like carbon monoxide. You can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't smell it, but you're breathing it in and it will eventually kill you. 
We live in a culture that thrives on envy. Our world is designed to fires of envy that live inside of us. Social media, for example, trains us to constantly compare ourselves to other people. So you log on, you see their happy, healthy, smiling faces. You see the, the vacation that they just, you just see the new car or the new house or the new job or the new spouse. And you look at it and you say, well, that must be nice. And it's not just social media. Everything in our world is, is driven by envy, it seems. Everything from advertising to celebrity culture to politics. Our political climate is driven by envy. We are taught to envy and resent another group of people. And we look at them and we see what they have. And they, we think they don't deserve to have what they have. And we resent them for it. And then we elect politicians who give voice to our resentment. Our economy is driven by envy. We're conditioned to look at the happy, shiny, beautiful people and to want what they want. And our advertisers tell us, you can have that for a price. If I just had that car, if I just had that iPhone, if I just had those abs, whatever it is. And of course, it doesn't work, does it? And so we go on to the next thing. And the next, and the next thing, the system is designed to keep you frustrated the feature. It is designed to keep you envious. It's designed to keep you resentful. And that's not just true of immature people or even quote-unquote secular people. That's true of religious people. The Apostle Paul was one of the most religious men who ever lived. He was like a religious green beret. He was this elite religious scholar. Romans 7, he says, I thought I was a righteous, law-keeping religious man until I was confronted with my envy, until I was confronted with my coveting. Envy is so easy for us to excuse or ignore because it's so possible. It's so hidden. It lives in the secret places of our heart. You can be a good, moral, upstanding religious person and be filled with envy. You can look healthy on the outside, but inside there is a cancer eating away at your soul. That's why the Psalms are so helpful. Because the Psalms shine a light on those dark places in our heart where no one sees. And they give us words to express it. They give us words to be honest about the things that sometimes we won't even admit to ourselves. They show us the cancer inside of us so that then God can heal us by his grace. So let's look at it today. Let's look at Psalm 73 and let's listen to the voice of envy. And as I'm reading these words, be honest with yourself. Do you sometimes find yourself thinking things like this? Psalm 73 Surely God is good to Israel, to those pure in heart. So that's what he knows theoretically. But then listen to how he feels. Listen to the way he's feeling when the voice of envy comes in. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues strut throughout the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. 
and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arrive, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved, Embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire apart from you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far off from you will perish and you destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, I think if we're honest, all of us would say we've said things like that, right? Even just internally, even if you never say them out loud, Psalm 73 gives voice to this envy that we often feel inside of ourselves. And it helps us to come into the presence of God and to process those emotions and those longings in the presence of God. And so I want to ask three questions about envy as we look at this psalm today. Three questions. One, what's the root of envy? Two, what does envy do to us? And then three, what do we do with our envy? What's the root of envy? What does it do to us? And what do we do with envy? So first, what's the root of envy? Where does envy come from? Think. Every error has some element of truth to it. That's why we fall for it. And envy is a natural response to the injustice of the world. Envy recognizes that life isn't fair. Starting at verse three, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, free from common human burdens, not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. They scoff. They speak with malice, arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. This is amazing. Their tongue struts throughout the earth. You ever met people like that? Ever seen people like that? Their tongue struts throughout the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them. In other words, everybody looks at people like that and thinks those are the people who have it together. Those are the people I want to be like. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. These are the beautiful people. The pretty, happy, shiny people. The, the healthy, the wealthy, the wise, at least in the eyes of the world. And we look at the world around us and we see how the powerful so often take advantage of the weak. We see how the rich so often exploit the poor. How, how the people who seem to have it all, the people who've been blessed with money and fame and beauty and intelligence and connections and every other privilege possible are the very ones who are flipping God the bird. And it's not just theoretical. This, this isn't just about celebrities and Instagram influencers, this hits us right where we are. You work so hard on your job. Do good, do good work. Honest, conscientious. You never cut corners. You do everything with integrity. And that slimy, 
backstabbing, politicking coworker gets the promotion instead of you. Committed to your marriage, and you love your spouse, and, and you're faithful to them, and then one day they walk out on you, and they find someone else, and they simply move on with your, their life, left picking up the pieces of a shattered heart and a shattered life. And you're left asking, where is God? Does God see? Does God care? Is God just? Are we allowed to ask questions like that? Are we allowed to talk that way in church? The Psalms talk that way in the church. That's what the Psalm is. Psalm 73 was a worship song. It was a song inspired by the Spirit of God for the worship of the living God. It was written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was the director of the temple choir. It's a song written for the people of God to sing in worship. And it invites us to be honest about our doubts. See, wrestling with questions, even the dark questions, even the hard questions, can be a way that God leads us to worship. Wrestling with doubt can lead you to greater faith because it expands our view of God and life and the world. It breaks us out of those simplistic religious cliches and it forces us to struggle with the messiness of life. So we look at the world and you see the wicked prosper and, and that violates our sense of justice. And that's a good thing. That should violate your sense of justice. God is a just God. It, it, it is good to grieve injustice. You should grieve when the rich exploit the poor. You should be angry when the powerful oppress the weak. You should work to end injustice in the world. God is grieved by those things. God is angry about those things. God will one day eradicate those things. But envy takes that good impulse and corrupts it. Envy takes that godly sense of justice and twists it into ungodly selfishness. And that's why it's so dangerous. Look how, dangerous, look, look, look how he talks about it, verses 2 and 3. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, envy's dangerous. It's like you're dancing on the edge of the cliff. Even though our culture often thrives on envy, it is not something to excuse or ignore or to mess around with. Why is it so dangerous? What does envy do to us? Two primary effects that you see in this psalm. First, envy clouds our thinking. Clouds our thinking. Verse four, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Now again, He's giving voice to his envy here, and there's a grain of truth in that, right? If you have a lot of money, if you have the right connections, you can avoid a lot of the hardships that sometimes other people can't avoid. Some of that is true, but the voice of envy drowns out the voice of reality. The voice of envy gives us a myopic view of the world. Envy tells us that the wicked don't have any problems. You look at people like that, and you envy their lives, but what you need to remember is that you don't see everything. All you see is their highlight reel. That's what envy does. It, it gives you tunnel vision. And so you start comparing your blooper reel to their highlight reel. Jim Carrey, who, uh, who many of you guys know, is an actor. Um, such great cinematic masterpieces as Dumb and Dumber, uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, some of those formative uh, cinematic experiences in my life. Well, Jim Carrey gave an interview uh, a few years ago when he said this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. So that's reality. 
Money and fame and having all your dreams come true is not the answer. And we kind of know that cognitively, but envy blinds us to that fact. Envy tells us it is the answer. It tells us if you're rich and famous and powerful and beautiful, that's the answer. And here's the thing. Maybe you don't even want to be on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Maybe you just want, they don't even have that show anymore, but some of you guys remember it. Maybe, maybe you just want a new job or a new car or a new house or a new spouse. But that's not the answer either. Envy clouds our thinking. It blinds us to reality. So that's the first thing it does. Second thing envy does is envy produces despair. Produces despair. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever felt that? In vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I honored God with my money. In vain have I honored God with my sexuality. In vain have I honored God with my work. In vain have I honored God by helping people in need. In vain have I honored God by serving the church. And I look around and I just see people living for themselves and their own selfish desires. And honestly, they seem so much better off for it. Now, here's the thing. If you've walked with God for a very long time, you've probably felt that at one point. I know I have. And so the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with our envy? Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. This seems completely counterintuitive, but Asaph says, if you want to understand why the world is so unjust, if you want to wrestle with the fact that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, if we want to honestly listen to the voice of envy crying out in our soul, then what we need to do is we need to worship. Worship. He says, I I tried to understand it all speculated about it, philosophized about it, yelled about it, even wrote a song about it, and it it just wore me out. But then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. I encountered the reality of the living God, and the reality of life began to become clear. Right? I mean, don't we experience that when we gather together? When the band leads us in worship, when we're singing and crying out, it is done, it is finished, Christ is risen, We begin to see things more clearly. Even when so many things are tearing apart our soul, we begin to see and experience and taste the reality of God. And that begins to make sense of the world around us. Even if it doesn't give us all the answers, it brings us to God. See, it is good and right to ask questions about the world. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It is good and right to ask questions. But if all we ever do is ask questions, then we will never come to grips with the reality of the world around us. Because God doesn't just want to give us answers. God wants to give us himself. God is not merely an idea to be speculated about. He is a person to be encountered. He is a person to be known. He is a person to be worshipped. And you will never come to terms with the harsh realities of the world until you come in to the presence of God. That's what we do with our envy. That's what we do with our doubts. That's what we do with our sense that life isn't fair. We let it drive us to the presence of God. He says, I went into the temple of the Lord. I went to church. I worshipped with the people of God. 
For many people, experiencing injustice around the world, worshiping with the people of God is what bolsters them in the midst of hard realities. Because worship reminds us that God knows more than we do. He sees more than we do. It reminds us of our future and the future of the world. This past week, I read an article by Henry Louis Gates Jr. He's a historian at Harvard. And, and, and the name of the article is How the Black Church Served Black America. And he asked the question, how did the African-American slaves endure centuries of rape and torture? How did they survive when their families were being ripped apart and their children sold to other masters? How did their descendants survive another century of dehumanization by Jim Crow after their supposed emancipation? How did they survive wickedness and brutality and inhumanity that is almost incomprehensible to us? How did they not succumb to despair? How did they endure suffering while still hoping for something better and still seeking their freedom? And he builds the case that it was the church. It was the message of hope instilled by them in the church that gave them the ability to endure under immense suffering, that gave them the resources to press on in the face of incomprehensible oppression because they were looking to a better future. A future that God promised when justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And that's what enabled them to wait and to work for the better future that God has promised. And you will only be able to live with that vision of the future when you learn to worship the living God with the people of God. It's the first thing we do. We worship. Second thing we do is we pray. We pray. Now notice in verse 18, the grammar shifts. First 17 verses, he's been speaking in the third person, right? He's been talking about injustice. He's philosophizing. He's speculating. And he's sinking deeper and deeper into despair. But in verse 18, he starts talking in the second person. He starts speaking to God. And that's where he starts to find hope. Look how he prays. How do we pray? First, he prays realistically. He play, prays realistically. He is utterly realistic. No sugar-coated sentimentality. No pious cliches. He, he has spent the first half of the psalm talking about how the wicked seem to have it so good. He is raw. He is honest. He is realistic about the unfairness of life. But the fact is, that's only part of the story. And when he goes into the presence of God, he begins to see the rest of the story. Look what he sees, verse 18. <laughs> Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. He says, I see people building their lives without God. And they're building their lives on something that will never be able to hold them. They're building palaces on the side of a muddy cliff. And it looks beautiful and it looks shiny and it looks glorious right now. But when the storms come, the rains are going to wash the mud away and it's all going to crumble into the sea. Okay, stop a minute and say, am I there? Maybe, maybe you're there. Maybe you're living as if God doesn't exist. Maybe you're simply living for yourself, your own pursuits, your, your own pleasure. And, and listen, if that's you, I want to plead with you out of love for you. Find someplace firm to build your life because you're building your life on something that can't hold you up. 
And maybe for the first time, God is disrupting you today. Maybe you've been going along and you've been building your life this particular way and everything seems like it's going well and God is disrupting that and he's shaking that up. And listen, if he's doing that, that's a really good thing because that's like a warning sign. That's him showing you you're building your life on something that can't hold up. And maybe you're a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're trying to follow him. You're trying to build your life on Christ. But we need to learn to allow the Lord to establish justice. Like, I've never experienced the injustice of slavery. I've never experienced the injustice that our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing even today. But but I, probably just like you, have experienced some smaller injustices in my life. And what's enabled me to endure that is the reality that God will take care of it. I don't need to punish that person. I don't need to take revenge. I don't need to get back with them. I can trust God to sort it out in the end. Pray realistically. Secondly, pray humbly. Verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Like, he's honest. He recognizes his own ignorance. God, I was envious. God, I was bitter. God, I was resentful. God, I was wrong. I was like a brute beast. I was ignorant. You know, you can be honest with God about that. Like, you don't have to pretend. You don't have to justify it. You are not the first person in the history of the world to struggle with envy, and you will not be the last. He's so patient with us. Look how patient he is. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. God never gives up on us. He doesn't say, you idiot, you should have known better. He doesn't fry us with a bolt of lightning when we start to question his justice and his goodness. Even when we are ignorant and sinful, he is always with us. He holds us by the right hand. He continues to guide us and he says he promises to bring us to glory. Right now, if you just look at the world around you, the beautiful, powerful, shiny people who live without God are the ones who look glorious. But ultimately, it's those who trust in the Lord who will be glorious. Ultimately, it's those who trust in the Lord, the book of Daniel says, who will shine like the stars in the heavens for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years into all of eternity. And it's all a gift of God's grace. That's not because we're better than anyone else. I mean, he says, I was ignorant. I was like a brute beast. It's not like he's better than anyone else. It's all of God's grace that he has brought us to himself. So pray realistically, pray humbly. Finally, pray thankfully. Pray thankfully. That's where he ends, right? He's wrestled with his doubts. He's wrestled with his resentment. He's wrestled with his envy. He brings it honestly to God, and that gives him a larger view of the goodness of God. And and notice what he's thankful for. He's not just counting his blessings, right? So he's not just saying, okay, yeah, like that drug kingpin over there, he's got a 70-foot yacht, but at least I've got a rowboat. And I'm, I'm counting my blessings. I'm thankful for the rowboat. Now, listen, it's not wrong to be thankful for the rowboat. You should be thankful for the rowboat. But that's not where he builds his joy. That's not where he builds his hope. His joy, his gratitude is grounded in something deeper than anything else life can give him or take away. Our gratitude is not based on the things that God has given us. Our gratitude needs to be based on the fact that God has given us himself. That's where you find true joy. Friends, you will never find true happiness in having more than the next guy. 
You will never find true happiness in getting the next shiny thing. The only way you will try find true happiness is when you find it in God himself. And the good news is that God has given himself to us. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire apart from you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far off from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So that God, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that compares to you. You are the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. For me, it is good to be near God. That's the only way you'll ever be able to deal honestly with the voice of envy. That's the only way you'll ever be able to have realistic hope in a world that is so unfair. It's by believing and knowing and experiencing the nearness of God. And the good news is that God has come near to us. God doesn't just know about the injustice and the unfairness in the world. He knows it. He has experienced it himself. Jesus was the only truly righteous man who ever lived. He's the only one who truly had clean hands. He's the only one who truly had a pure heart. He was the only one who could truly claim to be innocent. The rest of us, every single one of us, we are guilty in one way or another. Some of us are guilty because, because we're, we're living like the people Asaph talks about here in this psalm. We're living like there's no God. But, but, but some of us, are guilty because we have the same mindset as Asaph. Some of us are guilty because we're envious of the wicked, because we're, we're resentful. And what we're showing in those moments is that we didn't really love God. We loved the stuff we wanted God to give us. We, we used religion or morality as a way to get stuff from God. That's why we're so filled with envy so often. We're all guilty we all have unclean hands. We all have impure hearts. Jesus was the only one who was clean and pure, and yet he willingly experienced the injustice of the world. He gave up the riches of heaven and became poor for us. He gave up, gave up his divine rights so that he could serve us. He gave up his life so that he could die so that we might truly live. We all need his grace. Whether you have lived a moral, respectable life or whether you have made a disaster of your life, we all need his grace. We all need his mercy and he offers it to all of us. He calls us to trust him, to trust as we sang just a few minutes ago, it is finished, that he has died for our sins and risen again and he promises to forgive our sins and to make us children of God so that now we can experience the nearness of God. I don't have all the answers for why you're walking through or why you have walked through the things that you've walked through. I, I don't have all the answers about why God allows life to be so unfair and so unjust. But if you're struggling with the unfairness and the injustice of life, know that you are not alone. Jesus is there with you. Jesus knows what it is to be treated unfairly. He knows what it is to be treated unjustly. Psalm 34, 18 reminds us, God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So if you are brokenhearted and if you are crushed in spirit, know that that is the very place that God promises to meet you. 
And one day, he promises to end injustice. One day, Jesus said, I'm coming back, and I'm going to set all things right and make all things new. And in the meantime, you can trust him. So I just want to encourage you to to come to the Lord, to experience the nearness of the Lord. Come to him. If you're struggling with envy, come to him. If you're struggling with resentment, come to him. If you're struggling with doubt, come to him. If, If you're struggling with these desires and these temptations to find happiness apart from him, maybe you've lived your life that way. Come to him. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to try to figure out how to earn his grace or how to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and clean yourself up and get yourself right with God. No, Jesus died and rose again to bring us to himself. He came near to us so that we could come near to him. So I'll encourage you in the rest of this time as we pray and as we worship, I wanna encourage you to come freely into the presence of God with whatever baggage you've got, even the stuff that you wouldn't even tell anyone else. Come freely and openly into the presence of God who welcomes you to come near to him. All right, let's pray and then let's worship. Father, we, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times there's things in our hearts, there's envy, there's resentment, there's anger, there's ignorance, there's all sorts of things in our heart that Sometimes we don't, even, we don't want to tell anybody else. We don't want to tell you. We don't even want to admit to ourselves. But I thank you that you welcome us to do that. You welcome us to come honestly to you, to, to voice the things that we're struggling with. But we also thank you that you don't leave us there. We thank you that you draw us to yourself. We thank you that we don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be ashamed of that. We don't have to run away from that because Jesus dealt with our shame. Jesus dealt with our guilt. Jesus dealt with our sin by dying in our place and rising again. God, I don't know what everybody in this room is dealing with. I don't know what everybody worshiping online is dealing with. I have enough trouble with my own heart sometimes to even know what I'm dealing with. But Father, I pray that you would shine a light on us. I pray that that you would shine your light into our hearts, expose those places that we try to hide from everyone, including ourselves. And then speak your healing voice over them. Bring life to us. Father, I pray that we would would worship you now. Not, Not that we would ignore our brokenness and figure out how to worship you, but that out of our brokenness, we would come to you and worship you. For you are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. You are a good God. For us, it is good to be near God. You are our refuge. And so as we worship now, we want to tell of all your mighty works and worship you for the beauty of who you are. Pray in Christ's name. Uh, I'm going to try not to preach another sermon right now, but um, hey, maybe for you, you're, you're feeling the ground shake beneath you and it's not a welcome thing. Maybe there's like something in your life that's, it's feel like it's being upended. I mean, I think we all kind of feel that way a little bit over the past 18 months as a society, but maybe something in your life is making you feel destabilized. And I want you to know that 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 might be God shaking the ground so that the prison walls around you can come down. 
And so maybe the Lord is doing something in you and maybe you want to explore that. And so I would love to speak with you about that. I would love to pray with you. If there's any ways that we as a church can serve you, would, would love to do that. And I also want you to remember, friends, as you walk through the fire of life, God isn't just distant. It's not like he's just watching you down there saying, good luck with the fire. You'll be all right. No, he's with you in the midst of it. And so he is near to you, whatever you're walking through. Um, our key verse this week that we're going to be memorizing together and chewing on together is the end of Psalm 73. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So as you go throughout this week, go with gratitude and joy in the fact that whatever you're walking through, God is near you. All right, let's stand and let's, let's receive our benediction. Uh, this comes from Psalm 34, which I mentioned, and receive this promise as you go out this week. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Peace be with you. Have a great week.